Sometimes the pain and sorrow of life in this world makes us want to ask God why he is taking so long to bring an end to the sin and suffering. We know that he has plans to set everything right one day, and we wish he would just get on with it. But surely he has a purpose for making us wait, doesn't he? Today we open up our Bibles to the book of Numbers to read about the 40 years the Israelites spent wandering in the wilderness. We see in their story that God has some significant things to teach them in those wilderness years. Some of the same things he intends to teach us as we live our lives in the wilderness of this world. I spent a year in a college singing group that traveled to promote the school most weekends during the school year and for the entire summer. And we crisscrossed the country in a van that carried five singers and a sound man, pulling a trailer behind us with our gear. And over the many miles we traveled, we developed lots of inside jokes and made plenty of good memories. But we also got tired of each other's stories and picky food preferences and grumpy moods. I mean, there's nothing like a road trip to really get to know people, except maybe a camping trip. The rigors of an extended road trip or camping trip make it pretty hard to hide what we're really like. Can we agree that it's pretty hard to keep the ugly side of yourself hidden on a long trip? In the book of Numbers, Moses provides an account of what was perhaps the world's longest road trip slash camping trip one that lasted for 40 years. 40 years of packing and unpacking. 40 years of following directions and facing difficulty. 40 years of whiny voices calling out from the back seat, are we there yet? I'm hungry. This wasn't six college students in a van on the interstate, but two million former slaves on foot in the desert. They were carrying everything they owned, everything they walked away with from Egypt. They're not freshly showered and coming out of comfy hotel rooms, but they're dirty and dusty as they emerge from their wind-blown tents. All of the older folks are more than a little cranky because they know that they will never actually arrive at their destination, but are destined to die in the desert. Their children, the next generation will get there. And that's the only thing that keeps them going. To this point in our study, we've witnessed the Israelites freed from slavery in Egypt, led by the pillar of cloud away from the most direct route to the land of Canaan, delivered from death, crossing the Red Sea, and instructed at the foot of Mount Sinai. That is where they've been for many months now, receiving the law that is going to shape them as a nation, constructing the tabernacle, where they will meet with God, ordaining the priests who will mediate for them with God, and instituting the sacrifices and sanctified way of life their holy God requires. And now it is time for them to move forward into Canaan, the land God promised to give them long ago when he spoke to their father Abraham, saying, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. This promise is what has brought them out into the wilderness. It was 
or ought to have been the most important thing in their lives? Would they trust God to bring about all that he promised? And would they trust him to take care of them while they waited for it? Or would they rebel, resist, refuse to believe? And really, the questions are the same for us. We who have been adopted as God's children are people who have been given a promise from God regarding an inheritance that awaits us in the heavenly land. Peter wrote about it in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This promise ought to be the most important thing in life to us. God has brought us out of slavery to sin and promised us abundance and rest in his promised land. But here we are in this in-between time, wandering through the wilderness we call life in this world. And the questions for each of us are, will I trust God to bring about all that he has promised and to take care of me while I wait to inherit it? Will I spend my life learning all that God wants to teach me about his provision, his holiness, and his ways while I'm here in the wilderness of this world, knowing that he is preparing me for life in his presence? Or will I spend these years called my lifetime simply seeking satisfaction for my cravings, grumbling and complaining when I don't get everything he has promised in the here and now? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness were written as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So let's open up the book of Numbers to see how God's people responded to God's promise and provision in the wilderness. And let's learn from it so that our desires might be retrained away from evil and toward God's goodness. In Numbers 10, we get our first glimpse of Israel on the march through the wilderness. It's about a month after the glory of God came down to rest on the tabernacle in a cloud. Look at Numbers 10, verses 11 and 12. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. This is a good start. Following the lead of the presence of God in their midst. If all continues to go well, they should be in the promised land within a few short weeks. But immediately we see that things are not going all that well. Look in the next chapter, Numbers 11 in verse 4. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. 
Evidently, the grumbling started with those who lived on the fringes of the camp. This is the mixed multitude of people of various nationalities who came out of Egypt with God's people. But this grumbling on the edges worked its way inward, spreading its infectious discontent throughout the rest of the camp. What were they complaining about? They were complaining about the same thing you and I complain about when the food at this exit signs on the interstate don't display the familiar logo we're looking for. It's not that they had nothing to eat. It's that they wanted something else to eat besides the manna God rained down on them every day. For some reason, perhaps because I believed their complaints, I've always assumed that this manna was tasteless and bland. But if we look closely, we realize that manna was less like the porridge slopped into Oliver's bowl and more like a croissant from a fine French bakery. One translation reads that it tasted like a pastry cooked with the finest oil. The psalmist describes manna as the bread of heaven. What do you think bread made in heaven tastes like? Heavenly, right? Yet it wasn't good enough for these grumblers. You know, often people say that if God would do a miracle, then they would believe in him. But the whole history of Israel is the story of people who experienced miracles on a massive scale, including the daily miracle of manna waiting for them outside their tents. Yet they didn't trust God. Instead of believing in him, they rebelled against him. They became one-dimensional people who thought about life only through the knothole of their craving. Their desire for more variety in their diet, which was not evil in itself, became a demand that blinded them to anything and everything else. God spectacularly delivered them from slavery without asking them to fight a battle. He supernaturally fed them in the desert without asking them to work. He gave them the most faithful and humble leader imaginable in Moses, but they couldn't see any of it because they were consumed by their craving. Isn't discontent with God's provision really as old as the Garden of Eden? There, Adam and Eve were invited to eat of any tree in the garden except for one. But Eve was unsatisfied with God's provision and had to indulge her craving for the fruit of that one tree. And isn't discontent with God's provision also as modern as today? Many of us have a craving that blinds us so that we can't see all that God has done for us and all that he has given to us. Yes, we appreciate salvation and all that, but what we really crave is to be thin, to have a nicer house in a better neighborhood, to be elevated to a position with more authority and opportunity, to have a child, or to be able to change the child we have. For the Israelites, everything was about food. What is everything about for you? 
Are you going to allow that craving to be the knot hole through which you view all of life, causing you to lose sight of God's goodness? When we come to Numbers 13, it would appear that the Israelites have made good time in the wilderness, and they are on the southern outskirts of Canaan. Look at Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. These twelve men weren't so much sneaking around like military spies to judge the odds of defeating the enemy or the advisability of Israel moving forward. They were sent in to procure information for developing the move-in strategy. They were also sent to collect samples of local produce that would give the Israelites back in the camp a preview of what lay ahead for them to enjoy. This was the land that God had promised to give them. And so the question of should we shouldn't have even been on the table. And when the scouts returned to camp, all 12 of them agreed on two things. First, they agreed that what they had been told about this land was true. It was fertile and prosperous. They also agreed that the people living in the land were a force to be reckoned with. But for 10 of the scouts, there was also bad news in their report. Listen for their huge however in the report. Look at Numbers 13, first verses 27 and 28. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. Now skip down to verse 31. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. The land, it devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. The majority report left God and his promise completely out of the equation. They seemed to have developed amnesia regarding all of God's protection and provision over the previous months since they walked out of Egypt and across the dry ground of the Red Sea. But Joshua and Caleb's report and response is very different. Look back in chapter 13, verse 30. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. What was the foundation of Joshua and Caleb's confidence? Was it the military prowess of the people? Not even close. While 10 of the scouts focused on the power of the opposition, Joshua and Caleb focused on the power of God, saying in essence, let's trust God's promise. If we were to fast forward into Israel's story, we would see many years later, a short little shepherd boy facing one of those Canaanite giants that the scouts saw, named Goliath, with nothing but a slingshot, five stones, and confidence in the power of God. He will say, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Once again, the Israelite majority will discount the promise of God and inflate the power of the enemy 
but God's man will go forward in faith. The majority report seemed to take the road trip weary Israelites past their tipping point. Look at Numbers 14, beginning in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's actually a pretty good thing to ask the question, why is the Lord bringing us into this land? But of course, they were not asking the question out of a desire to fulfill God's purpose, but questioning if he really had one and suggesting that if he did, it was not working for them. It's not that they didn't know what God's purpose was. His purpose and his promise had been clear. It's just that they refused to believe it. They refused to trust God. My friends, it is not an insignificant thing to know the promise of God and refuse to believe it. But that is what these people did. They were already thinking through what they'd say to Pharaoh to get their old jobs back at the brick factory. When four men, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb, fell on their faces and tore their clothes, begging them to trust God's promise. We see what they were saying in Numbers 14, verses 8 and 9. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. At this point, the Israelites were so resistant to this encouragement to trust God that they took up stones to kill these four men. And this made God angry. He saw it not solely as a rejection of these men, but as a rejection of him. And he determined to put an end to their misery and start fresh with Moses to father a greater and mightier nation of people who would trust him. But Moses, their mediator, appealed to the Lord on the basis of the glory of God's name and the integrity of God's character. And the Lord relented. But there would be consequences. Look in Numbers 14, verse 28. As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said, would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. And down to verse 33, 
Your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. Would that we had died in this wilderness, they had complained. Well, now they will. God will drive Israel into the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. And he will also transform that same wilderness by an unsurpassed revelation of his grace. One would think that this sentence of 40 years in the wilderness would get the Israelites' attention in a way that would foster fresh eagerness to obey God. We read in Numbers 14 that the people mourned greatly. But clearly, their great sadness did not reflect genuine repentance over their refusal to trust and obey God because immediately they refused to trust and obey God again. God had instructed them to turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. But they determined to go the other direction, to try to move forward into the promised land in defiance of God's instructions, presuming upon his protection. Look at Numbers 14, verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? Do not go up. For the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. Having taken matters into their own hands, they were thoroughly routed by those who lived in the hill country on the southern edge of the promised land and were driven back into the wilderness. I suppose there was something positive here in that they were acting on their desire to experience what God had promised. But they were unwilling to submit to his disciplining judgment and wait on his timing. They saw no sense in spending 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But God did not intend for those years to be a waste. God intended to use those years, not only to weed out the unbelieving generation, but also to train up the new generation to be a people who would obey his word and trust his promise. Do you ever wonder why God is taking so long to bring about all that he has promised to provide to you? Do you sometimes find yourself impatient with God's plan that can seem like a sentence of meaningless suffering in the wilderness? Just as God intended to use those 40 years in the wilderness to teach and train his people, God intends to teach and train you as you walk through life in the wilderness of this world. It's in the wilderness. We're given the opportunity to work the gospel into our lives in the midst of difficult circumstances. We're forced to reckon with who we are and what we believe and don't believe. In the wilderness, we get to learn what it means to live by faith. 
over our lifetimes in the wilderness, God intends for us to become people who can say to him, it's not just your blessings I want. It's you I really want. The story of the new generation that will enter the land begins in Numbers 21. And we're introduced to them as they experience their first military victory against the Canaanites in Hormah, the same place where the first generation was defeated many years before. They were ready to keep going forward that way into Canaan, but instead were instructed by God to go around the land of Edom via the route by the Red Sea. The Red Sea. Isn't this going backward instead of forward? Impatient with this plan that would delay their entrance into the land, they begin to grumble, just like their parents had. It may be a new generation, but family patterns are hard to break. Look in Numbers 21 and see if this doesn't sound annoyingly familiar. Chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. What an insult to the God who had freed them and led them and sustained them and provided for them. As we've seen before in Israel's story, God will save them. But it will be a salvation that comes through judgment. Look back in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. Snakes, snakes, and more snakes not your harmless garden snakes, but poisonous snakes. People are being bitten. They are swollen and fever-filled, feeling as if their insides were on fire. Why would God send snakes? Was God just pulling something creative out of his bag of judgments? Or was it a matter of convenience with so many snakes to work with in the desert? Remember that the people were complaining about being brought up out of Egypt. And what was the symbol of Egyptian power that was featured on Pharaoh's crown? The serpent. So these serpents said with every hiss, is this really what you want? Do you want to be inflicted with suffering by the mighty serpent of Egypt again? Of course, the serpents were also a reminder of the ancient serpent who slithered into the Garden of Eden and caused Adam and Eve to be ejected from the garden and into the wilderness. These serpents served as a vivid reminder that they were in the wilderness instead of in the promised land as a result of their sinful disobedience and unbelief. And evidently, the snakes had their intended effect. Look back in Numbers 21, verses 7 through 9. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. 
So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Why would God instruct Moses to mount the very image of their misery on a pole and tell the people to look at it to be healed? Up on this pole hung the symbol of Israel's mortal enemies, Egypt and Satan, lifeless and defeated. It was a picture of how the power of sin would one day be defeated for good when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Fixing their gaze and thereby putting their faith in the one who will defeat the ancient serpent is what brought life and healing. So here we have it, a few snapshots taken along the way of Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. And frankly, it doesn't create a pretty picture. God brought his people out of Egypt so that they would be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But instead of being a kingdom of priests, they were a collection of complainers. Rather than being a holy nation, they were a holy terror every step of the way. Clearly, for Israel to be accepted by her holy God, she needed someone who would fulfill all that she was meant to be. Someone who, in her stead, would be faithful even in the harsh discomforts of the wilderness. Someone who would not presume upon God's power, complain about God's provision, or impatiently quarrel against God's plan. This is why Matthew, in his gospel, takes such care to make sure his readers see that Jesus is the embodiment of all that Israel was meant to be. Matthew who was trained by Jesus himself in how to understand the writings of Moses, presents Jesus as the true and better Israel. As we read through the early chapters of Matthew's gospel, we recognize that Matthew is retracing the history of Israel, helping us to see how its story is echoed in Jesus' life. In chapter 1, the genealogy establishes Jesus as an Israelite. In chapter 2, Matthew writes that Jesus went to Egypt and remained there until Herod died, quoting the prophet Hosea's words that are clearly about Israel, Out of Egypt I called my son. Yet as far as Matthew is concerned, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Israel pointed to. And in that sense, he is the ultimate people of God and the final son of God. In chapter 3, we see Jesus walk through the waters of baptism like the Israelites walked through the waters of the Red Sea. And then, in chapter 4 of Matthew, we see Jesus led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God for 40 days to face temptation. 
in the same way the children of Israel were led in the wilderness by God's presence in the cloud for 40 years. Just as Israel experienced a lack of food and water in the desert, so did Jesus. Matthew writes in chapter 4, verse 2, And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The Israelites were tempted to live a life detached from dependence upon God. And so was Jesus. But while Israel grumbled and complained about God's provision, Jesus remained confident that God was feeding him the very best of food. His own word. He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Evidently, Jesus was thinking through this temptation in the wilderness in light of his identity as the true Israel. And so three times, in response to each of Satan's temptations, he drew from the instructions God gave to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Israel had never seemed to learn that all of her cravings could be entrusted to her great provider, but Jesus trusted in God's provision. In the second temptation, Satan quoted from Psalm 91, misusing it for his own purposes. Look at Matthew 4, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus would not be manipulated by this twisting of Scripture. He knows that you can make the Bible say anything you want if you do not interpret Scripture with Scripture. Psalm 91 encourages us to trust God, not to test Him. Look in verses 7 to see how Jesus responds. Jesus says to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The devil suggested that Jesus prove that he is the Messiah by putting on a show of his sonship for all to see. But Jesus refused to presume upon God's protection as the Israelites had done when they tried to take Canaan in defiance of God's instructions. Look now in Matthew 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Satan knows that Jesus is slated to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, that he is set to inherit the whole world. What Satan offered was a shortcut to this destination that would not include the cross. Perhaps because he knows the cross is not so much Jesus' doom as it is his. But whereas the Israelites were impatient with God's route, which took them through the wilderness, Jesus refused to resent God for what his plan would require. 
and instead for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus left the ultimate land of milk and honey, heaven itself, to enter into the wilderness of this world with us. Here he showed us what it means to be faithful, to obey, and to be pleasing to God in the midst of hardship and temptation. He showed us what it looks like to depend upon God to provide in his timing and in his way. But he didn't do this merely to serve as our example. He did this to serve as our substitute. On the cross, Jesus entered into the ultimate wasteland of death in our place so that we might enter into the abundant life that God has promised. The Apostle John records a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, a Pharisee, someone steeped in the writings of Moses who came to him in the middle of the night. He had witnessed Jesus' miracles and he wondered what he should do, how he should respond. To answer him, Jesus drew upon a story that Nicodemus would be familiar with, a story that pictured exactly what Nicodemus needed to do. Look with me in John 3, beginning in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Maybe you've never heard John 3.16 before in this context, but doesn't this background of the scene from Numbers 21 make it clear what Jesus was saying when he talked about believing and not perishing? To believe is to look to Jesus, fully aware that apart from him, you will die in the wilderness. To believe is to look to Jesus, confident that only in him will you find healing from the poison of sin. The Israelites had to look at an image of the thing that was killing them on the pole as a remedy for their sin. And Jesus became what was killing us, sin itself, when he was lifted up on the cross and thereby became the remedy for sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have looked to Christ and been healed, you can be sure that you will not die out in the desert apart from God's blessing, but will one day cross over the river Jordan into the promised land. You have this promise as the foundation of your hope. And to the degree that this promise works its way through your entire being, you will live differently here in the wilderness. Instead of complaining, you'll be content with God's provision. Instead of 
questioning God's purpose, you'll be convinced that all the difficulty in the wilderness of this life is purposeful. Instead of presuming upon God's protection here and now, you'll be confident in his eternal protection. Instead of being impatient with God's plan, you'll be willing to wait to receive all that God has promised. Don't waste your years in the wilderness, my friend, questioning, complaining, and rebelling against God. But on those days when you do complain or question or rebel, remember this. There is one who has faced every temptation that you have faced and is yet without sin. He has gone before you and will one day welcome you into the land. His welcome will not be based on your record of obedience in the wilderness, but on his. You need only look to him and live.